if you want to know who controls discourse in DC, it's Google, right? I mean, Google funds everyone or JP Morgan. They're the ones, and it's not lobbying. They're giving to think tanks. They're giving to academics. Like, Lovely light, everybody. And welcome back to another episode of El Podcast, the greatest virtual happy hour in the world. My name is Kai Primo, and this episode will be hosted by my fiance and super co-host, Jesse Wright. If you're not yet subscribed, please consider subscribing on YouTube and Rumble. And you can also find us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from. Our guest today is Matt Stoller. Matt Stoller is a fellow at the Open Markets Institute. Previously, he was a senior policy advisor and budget analyst to the Senate Budget Committee. He also worked in the U.S. House of Representatives on financial services policy, including Dodd-Frank, the Federal Reserve, and the foreclosure crisis. So this is going to be a very interesting podcast. So grab a drink, sit back, and enjoy the show. Well, thank you for joining us, Matt. Thanks for having me. You're the author of the book, Goliath, the 100-year war between monopoly, power, and democracy. Could you provide for the audience that hasn't read this book your 30 to 60 second summary of it? Sure. It's a story of how Americans thought about market power and monopolies in the 20th century, largely. There's this dormant tradition of American suspicion of concentrated financial and monopoly power. And you can see it with like people mad at pharmaceutical companies or they're mad at big banks or big tech companies or big oil or whatever. And that goes back hundreds of years. I start my story with Teddy Roosevelt and the formation of corporate America. People don't know it has a history. Then through a whole bunch of brutal fights in the 20s and 30s and 40s and where the American public kind of tamed big companies and built a middle-class society by doing that, broke up a bunch of airline companies, broke up banks, broke, you know, did all these like really interesting things. And then I traced how this tradition got airbrushed out of our collective memories, then why big business came back and became incredibly dominant like it is today. So you can see this in lots of different ways. But anyway, we have a monopoly crisis in America. You could see it from the financial crisis of 2008. And I wanted to explain why that is. To do that, I had to explain there's this dormant tradition that was really important. And then we built a lot of great things and then it fell apart. And here's why. And here's how to bring it back. So it's a history. You worked in the U.S. House of Representatives in the financial services policy for a while. How has this insider perspective allowed you to write this book? And kind of what have some of the other experiences have allowed you to have a pretty good insight to actually be an authority or an expert on this topic? I started working in Congress in early 2009 when the financial crisis was at its peak and we were in the midst of banks falling apart and then foreclosures were pretty bad for the next three or four years. So 10 million homes got foreclosed on by banks and nobody at the time knew what was going on. Like the banks were falling apart and the capital markets were a mess. I was hired by a guy who, you know, new congressman who's like, we got along and he's like, hey, do you want to come help me with policy? So I, I joined, I was his only policy staffer. And he got put on the banking committee, right, the financial services committee on the house. And so I started to try to understand banking, right? As it was all falling apart. I didn't know that much about banking, but it was kind of a nice time to do that because as it turns out, no one knew much about banking. 
they were like, oh, this market's going to blow up. That market's going to blow up. And just stuff was that was unexpected was blowing up. Like the lobbyists, like treasury people, Federal Reserve people, like all the experts that you would think would know what was going on just didn't. But there was this one person that I was engaged with who was this old economist named Jane DeResta, and she did seem to actually have a handle on what was going on. She'd be like, oh, this thing is going to crash, and then it would it would crash, or that thing's going to crash, and then it would crash. I was like, how did you know all this? And she said, well, I used to work for this old congressman named Wright Patman. So my book is about this guy named Wright Patman, who was in Congress from 1929 to 1976. And she used to work for him. He was the chair of the banking committee in the 60s and 70s. She saw the rules that had been put in place to keep banking safe get pulled apart. She like knew where the guardrails should have been. So she knew where we were going to go off the rails because those guardrails were no longer there. That's how I got interested in the history of pulling apart all of these guardrails. So this guy who's named Wright Patman, he's basically the main character of the book. This congressman from Texarkana, which is the northeast corner of Texas. It borders Arkansas and Oklahoma. And, you know, real, real the oil patch. Old traditional New Deal Democrat territory. Now it's like right-wing Republican territory, but it's people who do commodities. Like they drill for oil, they grow cotton. They got a chip on their shoulder about like Eastern bankers. And it used to be that the Democrats were fighting Eastern bankers, and then it was the Democrats gave in to Eastern bankers, and so the area became very right-wing. Well, Wright-Patman came from that area, and so Jane worked for Patman, and she told me these stories about him, how he was overthrown in the, mid, in the 1970s by fellow Democrats. And I didn't think much of it until a couple years later when I started to read about antitrust and monopolies. And I learned that there was a law on the books called the Robinson-Patman Act to deal with chain stores like Walmart. We didn't enforce the law, which is why you had dominant chain stores like Walmart and Amazon, but it was there on the books. And as it turns out, when it was enforced, it was set up in the 30s to deal with the Walmart of its day, which was the A&P supermarket chain. That was the aggressive expansion chain store. And I thought, well, that's really interesting. So this guy who was hostile to banking power in the 60s and 70s, Wright Patman, was also passed this important anti-monopoly rule in the 1930s. There's like a story here. And then I started to look into how Patman learned his politics and why this kind of old school populist who was constraining banking and corporate power, where he came from, and then why he was overthrown in 1975. The Democrats threw him off the, uh, he was the committee chair of the banking committee. They tossed him overboard. And that was basically the Bill Clinton generation that did it. Bill Clinton's first election was in 1974. He didn't win, but a whole bunch of his colleagues did, some of whom you know, lasted up until the 2000. And you know, they were the ones who were in charge when the financial crisis happened, like the Chris Dodds and the Henry Waxmans and those Barney Frank types. They all kind of got their start in 1974 and the next few elections after that. And they had a different philosophy about how to run the economy. So the overthrow of Wright-Patman was kind of this pivotal moment. What I was looking for, I guess I should have started with this, but like what I was interested in is I'm a member of the Democratic Party, but we decided in 2009 and 2010 to further concentrate political and economic power in the hands of bankers in response to a crisis that was caused by a concentration of political and economic power, which is a very weird thing to do, right? Too big to fail banks. What we need to do is make them bigger. Why would you do that? And it wasn't like there were like a lot of theories. Oh, corruption, campaign donations. But that what didn't that didn't wash. I, I worked with all a lot of people and they weren't taking bribes. It wasn't a function of campaign contributions. Barack Obama thought 
that the right thing to do was to further concentrate wealth and power in response to this crisis. So did most Democrats that I worked with. So did most Democratic voters. Why? I got into these ideological debates that had happened in the 1970s where you had people like Patman who you can go back to this long history. You can bring him, stretch him back to Franklin Delano Roosevelt and Louis Brandeis. You could bring him all the way back to Frederick Douglass and Thomas Jefferson. And you could go back to the English Civil War. But there was this traditional concentration, like skepticism of concentrated wealth and power that the Democrats and Republicans too jettisoned in the 1970s. I'm less interested in the Republicans because I'm not a Republican, but there's important stories there as well. I wanted to answer that question. Why did we make these choices? What was in the minds of policymakers and the public when we made these choices to further concentrate power? And it, it turns out there was this whole history of these fights that people didn't like really, they didn't really know. And so when I was sitting there in 2009 and 10, it was like, well, we have a Securities and Exchange Commission. We have these different banking regulators. We have these different antitrust enforcers, but nobody really knew what they were there for, right? Like they were just sort of like, well, I, you know, I mean, I guess there's there's a building, there's some regulators. Like what was the point of having any of that? And because they didn't know, because they didn't have a sense of like, these were originally institutions that were designed to constrain corporate power and designed to decentralize power and make things more equal and safer, when the decisions, when we had these pivotal decisions to make in 2009 and 10, we didn't make the decisions to decentralize power and to make things safer. We made the decisions to centralize power uh, because that was the the philosophy of the Obama administration was that you need to listen to experts and not the public, right? Experts know what they're doing and you should defer to them. And when you feel like experts should be running things, then the right thing to do is to consolidate power and then put a few experts in charge as opposed to, because if you decentralize power, then everyone's going to be running a little bit of, you know, a little bit of stuff. That's the nature of decentralization. But if you consolidate power, then you can put a few people in charge who kind of know what they're doing. That was the thinking behind the policy choices, not just of the, the, what they did with the bailouts and the regulation of banks, but also with things like Obamacare, which consolidated the healthcare industry and the hospital industry and a whole other, bunch of other industries, or like what happened with airlines, where they consolidated facility consolidation of airlines, or even things like Live Nation Ticketmaster, which that was a merger that happened under the Obama administration. There were mergers before that into the Bush administration, but it was a it was a long there was a had been a long period of consolidation going back to the late seventies, early eighties, which was really a function of the overthrow of Wright Patman this ideological debate and defeat of the populists, you can trace the history of America from the late 1970s, early 1980s, all the way through today. What we see in America today of consolidated corporate power, I mean, well, lots of people have debates over culture that doesn't really affect money. You can see where that came from when you look at things from the vantage point of corporate concentration instead of the way that a lot of people like to look at history, which is through looking at different groups of people holding signs and yelling things. A hundred years from now, when people write about the current period that we're in, will this be known as the second robber baron era or the Gilded Age 2.0? The way I look at it is this is actually an unusual era. There's this perception that the late 19th century was the robber baron era, 
when you had the Rockefellers and the Carnegies and it was run by the plutocrats, right? With like fancy cigars and stuff like that. And then eventually you had the progressive era that kind of started to put some controls on that and you had the New Deal. And actually one way to understand what what really happens, there's a bunch of good historians who are looking back and saying, actually, there really never was a robber baron era. That's kind of a fake story. There were lots of different ways to try to gain control of corporate power going back to the 1600s and all the way through. In the late 19th century, you could look at it, actually the whole long 19th century, you could say is, is sort of the anti-monopoly era. There were lots of different ways to address it. And there was sort of a brief moment in the 1880s when the trusts got out of hand. The Supreme Court ruled in, I think, 1886 that states couldn't regulate railroads that were going over state lines. And that was sort of the moment that the corporation could get out of their controls. But like the next year, Congress passed the Interstate Commerce Commission Act to have federal regulation of railroads. And then a few years later, they had the Sherman Antitrust Act. And there was just like this immense institutional creativity to try to maintain control of our corporations and banks. The story of the Robert Barons as such is actually a creation of the 1950s and 60s when a series of radical left-wing historians sort of said, well, that was something that happened. And also some very right-wing historians said, well, the 19th century was the era of laissez-faire, not of anti-monopoly, not of lots of rules and regulations and state commissions. There was immense amounts of regulatory technologies and innovations, and then they just kind of airbrushed those out of history. The reason they did that is so that they could create this framework that came to power in the 1970s, where they said, well, we need to get government out of the way. Not that that makes sense. There's always a regulatory scheme, but they made the argument that public applications of power were inappropriate and that you needed to consolidate governing power in the hands of private actors, whether it's JP Morgan or Google or whoever. And when they did that in the early 80s, they unleashed a fairly unusual consolidation of political and economic power in America. This includes things like getting rid of usury caps, which have been in American state law since the 16, really the 1600s. Often usury caps were some of the first laws put when you'd had a new colony, they would, the first thing to do is impose a usury cap, right? It's in the Bible. This is something that they got rid of in the 1970s and 1980s and said, oh, we've discovered these new fancy techniques showing that usury is good, right? If you look at our history in that context, what you would see is that the explosion of consolidated corporate power, these giant pools of money and the lack of control that ordinary people have over their lives, we've never had anything like this before. There is no robber baron era. This might be the first robber baron era, I guess you could say. And you can see the consequences are things that we've never seen in America before, like lifespans have been stagnant or declining since 2015. That's never happened in America. Lifespans always go up. There's occasionally a war or there's like a flu epidemic, something like where, where lifespans decline for one year because a bunch of people die in something. But to have a sustained epidemic of suicides and drug addiction and alcoholism that we're seeing where to the point where lifespans are going down over violence, this is not something that we've ever seen in America before. And I think it's related to the consolidation of power in the hands of a small group of people at a federal level. That's new. So I think the way that people are going to understand this current moment as a break from the historic American experiment of community, you know, community control and individual rights, localized control, self-governance. We've moved away from that. 
and towards this era of kind of dominance of judges and central bankers and billionaires. And that's not an American, like that's a very uh, weird way to understand America. I mean, a lot of people think, oh, that's just America, right? That's an American capitalism is just inequality. And that's never been the case. Um, but the idea, the memory, the idea that's the case is part of the victory to explain to people, to tell a story about America that justifies what we have now and says, well, this is the American tradition when that is not at all, the, in fact, the case. So in a hundred years, who knows what, can't, can't predict what's going to happen tomorrow. But in a hundred years, if there's a relatively intellectually honest history of what happened here, they will tell the story of how the American revolution kind of ended in the early 1980s. And we went into this new weird 40 year thing. And then after this 40 year thing, hopefully we recapture that spirit of the American revolution and bring back self-governance. That's what my goal is. And I think there's like a general sense that that's what people want. Your book was published in 2019, thus kind of pre-pandemic. Right. If you had to update it and add a chapter, it seems like things have gotten more monopolistic. So my books held up pretty well. There are a lot of books that didn't hold up with the pandemic. A lot of people, <laughs> well, I won't, I, I won't get into it, but I think what's happened is you have two trends that are working at cross purposes. The first trend is there's been more monopolization so my book came out in October of 2019. That was the end of the Trump era. The Trump administration did some good things. They brought an antitrust case against Google, for example. But by and large, it was further consolidation. And the consolidation got a little bit worse during COVID. And the institutions are not getting fixed, right? The other side of the coin, though, is that we've had this tremendous emergence of an anti-monopoly movement. And so policymakers... And lawyers and economists and young people and business people are all starting to say, hey, there is a problem here and we need to use the law to fix it. And then Biden himself, his administration is cross-pressured, just like the Trump administration was cross-pressured. There's different factions. Some of the people in the Biden administration put in positions of important authority. The antitrust enforcers are part of this anti-monopoly movement. They're much more aggressive and they've stopped a ton of mergers and merger activity is way down. And there are now antitrust suits against a whole bunch of different entities in everything from pesticides to big tech. They're taking forever, right? And these suits take forever. But you also see Congress is trying to move pieces of legislation. They strengthened antitrust law last year for the first time since the 1970s. It was minor, but it was a big deal to get that through. So there's a fundamentally different attitude that's taking place among policymakers. It's not quite a consensus, but it's there. Like as the institutions are moving one way, the actual policy trends are moving the other way and they're starting to conflict. And the place for that conflict is in Congress and in the judiciary. I would say those are the two changes that we've seen, but the public has not seen enough change, right? Like there's some things like insulin prices dropped, right? Pretty dramatically. And that's for a number of reasons. That would be an example of the anti-monopoly movement succeeding. But generally speaking, I think people see the consolidation in banking. JP Morgan is taking advantage of this banking crisis. And Janet Yellen, she's a pro-monopolist. She's a treasury secretary. She's pro-monopolist. Jay Powell, chair of the Fed, pro-monopolist. Like, there's a bunch of people that are sort of pro-monopoly in the Biden world and a bunch of people that are anti-monopoly in the Biden world. So we're seeing these two forces kind of fight each other. You also see a lot of stuff happening at the state level. You see weird, interesting things happening on the Republican side of the aisle. 
the public hasn't yet seen enough to really gain confidence that our policymakers can get a hold of our situation, but it's getting better on a policy level. It seems at least certainly since the pandemic that instead of society progressing, we've kind of regressed. And when you're talking about Wright Patman and uh, the early politicians fighting for eight hour workdays, wages have stagnated. I mean, people are working more hours now, especially if you're an American, maybe you get two weeks vacation. I know most professionals are salaried, whether you work at Google or Facebook or a hospital, you're working like 70 hour work weeks. You talk a lot about kind of populism in the book. And it seems like it's kind of like the people are in a fight against the aristocrats. We're kind of in a modern day serfdom, it feels like. Yeah. I mean, I think um, I think modern day serfdom is the right way to think about it. I mean, the thing is, is like there are, I don't know, 120, 150 million people who work in America and they all have, um, you know, a lot of them have similar jobs, but not all. I mean, there, there's a lot of different jobs in America, right? So some people are working 10 hours a week at high wages and some people are working 80 hours a week at low wages, right? So, so I don't think you can characterize all work in one way or the other. But I do think that there is a level of control that all of us feel. You can be poor and you feel it very intensely. You can be rich and maybe it's very light. But the control that these sort of distant masters are placing on us is very real. So let's take somebody who's, if you're poor, right, and you work, you have to work a lot, you're treated, you're not treated particularly well. And then oftentimes you're paid on debit cards where to get the cash, they charge a fee, right? Everything is bureaucracy. That's how people feel it. If you're rich, you don't escape it. It's much better for you, but you can't really be honest about the business you're in because you're afraid of your business, the monopoly that you depend on retaliating, right? That's not nearly as bad. It's nothing like being poor, but it is actually an infringement on one's freedom. And the idea that people are afraid is, I think, something that characterizes the American commerce and American society today. And it isn't just where you work and how you work. You know, health insurance is like a nightmare to navigate. It's not just that it's expensive. It's just a nightmare to deal with. I know somebody who recently went to Nordstrom's and ordered expensive pants, right? And they couldn't return them. They got the wrong pants and then they couldn't return them. And they were like, they were like, oh yeah, looked it up. Nordstrom's is owned by a private equity firm. And they just had all these ways that make it really hard to return pants. Not a big deal. They can afford it, but it's still one more little indignity, right? Or like airlines, people are just facing a million indignities every day. And I think that's what characterizes American society right now. It's just American institutions at this moment are designed around cheating people. And that is unusual, right? I mean, there's always some scam artists. There's always some cheating going on in every society. But to have like wholesale control of these institutions, to have people learn at business schools, your goal is to figure out how to price in ways that extract more than you should get. That's unusual. Traditionally, it's like, okay, you want to have a reasonable return on your capital. If you put money into something to build something, you should get some reasonable return. That's the way that Americans have traditionally looked at commerce. Private property is a way to protect yourself from the state. It's a way to own, to have some control over your life and your community. But to say 
we should be able to just extract from others what is not rightfully ours as a moral proposition, that is weird, right? Like people have always done it, but we've always had a kind of consensus that you shouldn't do it and that our laws should prevent that. But today, I think there's still a large percentage of policymakers and judges and various others who actually think that morally speaking, your your job is to extract more than you should get. That is a very weird uh, that is a very weird ideology to have running a society. I think as society kind of collapses, you're seeing more and more people saying that this is crazy. It's a crazy way to run things. I think we'll turn it around. But yeah, I, I do think tr the peasant model, the feudal model that you talked about, I think that's the right way to look at it. Where do you think the culture war fits into this? Because I always feel like it goes back to the whole bread and circuses analogy. Abortions for 50 years has been a huge debate. And right now with the whole LGBTQ uh, stuff going on, and it just seems like it's a way to distract people from actually understanding finance. I mean, you talk in the book about how Wright Patman basically said that the banking industry made banking complex and mysterious. So it would scare people off from understanding it. None of these things are really complex. You could say the same thing really about the pharmaceutical and health industry. They use terminology like Latin words and they could just use plain English and people would understand it. To the culture war question, you could look at it from the right wing or left wing perspective. I'll look at it from the left wing perspective because that's kind of where I come from, right? So there, there's a historian named Judith Stein who has a series of great books on the relationship of industrialization, deindustrialization of America and civil rights movement. So she's got one book called Running Steel, Running America, and another one called The Pivotal Decade, How America Traded Factories for Finance in the 1970s. What she showed is that there were two parts of the civil rights movement, two strands of it, and they were ideologically opposed to one another. In the early 1960s, you had cold warriors in Washington, D.C. looked at America and they said, we're so rich. We are so affluent that if we trade away an industry and hurt some people here, it's fine because they can get other jobs and it'll be all right. But other countries might go communist if we can't make them prosperous. So they would do things like, say, allow for the steel industry to allow for more steel imports here to get rid of and steel jobs here would get harmed or eliminated, or auto jobs here would be eliminated. And that would strengthen other countries. Like you trade the Massachusetts shoe industry to Spain so that Spain doesn't go communist. That was a thing that happened. That's what Kissinger actually wanted to do in the 60s. And that was the economic policy of the Cold Warriors, was just trade away American jobs in return for American geopolitical interests that they perceived as geopolitical interest. The net effect of that here was when you had unionized workplaces in the steel industry or the auto industry, and all of a sudden, instead of them growing, there are layoffs. Who gets laid off? Well, according to union rules, the last people hired get laid off. Those usually because of the integration was started really in the 40s and 50s and, and 60s, the more senior employees were white, and the new employees were black. So you saw this mass layoff of black people just because of union seniority rules. There wasn't intentional racism. It was just the industry's shrinking, so we're going to lay off the last people hired. So what happened is the civil rights advocates and unions who had been aligned, the civil rights advocates said, 
these union rules are racist. The union leaders were saying, uh, you're saying that we should lay off more senior workers who these are, this is their right. And neither of them looked at the Cold War model and said, the problem is we have a shrinking pie. What effectively happened is we had a situation where people were saying white people and black people have to fight over who gets dinner. And that is a bad way to foster racial tolerance, right? Because what you're saying is if you're white, you can protect your family in a white supremacist society, or you can live in a tolerant society, but you'll be poor and your family won't be protected. And that's not a fair choice to give to people, but that is the choice that they started giving in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. And so one of the things that sort of this new strain of the civil rights movement took over and started saying, well, it's too difficult to deal with, with this working class problem. So what we'll do is we'll do things like affirmative action. We'll go elite. So instead of trying to create a multiracial democratic society where everyone has some economic and political power, we'll just try to diversify the elites. We should have black politicians and we should have black CEOs and black sort of elite leaders, which is, and same thing with women. And that, that's where you get the diversity, equity, inclusion, sort of HR model. And a lot of the civil rights laws were instrumentalized in human resources departments. And so what you saw kind of in the 70s, this, acceler this trend accelerated more aggressively, 70s and 80s, when you saw the deunionization of America. You have a culture war is what a civil rights movement looks like when no one has any power. When you don't have a new deal, but you try to kind of impose racial or justice or gender-based justice on a peasantry, right? And say, you have no rights. And also you must be tolerant as opposed to saying everybody has rights. And that's why you must, we must all be tolerant. That's the philosophy that kind of took over because we had the Cold War model, but then also this dramatic consolidation of economic and political power in the hands of a few. And that's why I think people are arguing, they think they're arguing for racial justice or justice for tolerance for all sorts of sexual orientations or whatever. But in fact, they're arguing for a kind of like elite diversification strategy and not for equal political rights for everyone. You get into these arguments that seem often like a little bit besides the point. And it opens the door if you don't address the problem of like, look, everybody needs to have some rights and some political power. If you don't say that and you don't acknowledge the basic equality of individuals and you don't have an economic power lens, it opens the door to the rise of sort of basic forms of tribal chauvinism, which you have in every society. So that's kind of my read on it. And I think the reason that you saw the Democratic Party from the 1930s until the 1970s, you could look in different states and it went up into the 1990s. It was a party of people who combined black voters who turned to the Democratic Party in the 30s and white supremacists in the South. And that is a weird coalition if you th think about it from like the modern lens when you're just like the only thing that matters are to these cultural disputes. But it was not a weird coalition if you think about it in the context of we are all trying to address Wall Street and we're all focused on some sort of economic power lens and we're going to fight over questions of social equality 
subordinated to that, and I'm oversimplifying because there were a bunch of white supremacists who were on Wall Street's side. I'm just saying it's not like the Republicans of that era were like super into tolerance or anything. It's just that political coalition existed for 40 or 50 years, and we have to acknowledge it and recognize that there was something going on there that was able to build a coalition of people who had radically different ideas about these social relationships, but also how over that time period, people became more tolerant culturally and socially tolerant. And many ways, the civil rights movement of the 1960s and 50s, 60s and 70s was explicitly built on top of a New Deal economic foundation. And when we removed that foundation, it became really hard to talk about identity in any form but grievance. That is not a recipe for a democratic society where people have equal political rights. And I say that's the way that I would that I would characterize it. You know, your book basically starts maybe the late 1800s, and then you, you talk about the concentration of power monopolies, and you go to the 1930s with the New Deal, and then kind of busting up the monopolies. Seems like America is starting to get back to, I say, more equality. And then you talk about the 1970s with the Watergate babies, and then that's when you say basically that the financialization of America begins, and then you end up with kind of modern day America currently in monopolistic corporatism, whatever you want to call it. That'd be my like 30 second kind of summary of the timeline of your book. Um, how would we reverse this and get back to having more equality for the average American in terms of economic equality? I think the answer is the law. Right? We have to put more faith in Congress, put more faith in our state legislatures, and ask them to pass laws that constrain corporate power. And you can see it's happening. Minnesota is about to pass a bill that would bar non-compete agreements. Many people who work for a living have agreements that say that you're not allowed to leave and work for a rival. Minnesota would bar these kinds of agreements. We also have an agreement that would make hospital mergers more difficult. Colorado has a law that allows farmers to repair their own equipment. It's a right to repair law. There's a ton of different initiatives at a state and local level to deal with prevent corporate subsidies or change tax law. Like Maryland has a law to tax big tech advertising profits. And Congress is getting interested in doing something about the pharmaceutical supply chain. They just passed in committee yesterday something called the Rail Safety Act to deal with the railroad derailments. They just regulated the shipping industry last year with the Ocean Shipping Reform Act. Uh, we have to get Congress functional again and get our state legislators functional again and ask them to constrain corporate power, strengthen anti-monopoly rules, strengthen labor protections, change the way we do intellectual property rules so that it defends the individual, the artist, the engineer instead of the monopolist. There are a lot of different ways to, to you change how government buys things. So they buy from small businesses versus big ones. There are like a lot of different levers to pull. And we're sort of starting to pull them a little bit here and there. And it's kind of about getting a new philosophy of how we run our society. And that's sort of happening. But it's like advocate for that. Run for office. Start new businesses. Like that. that's the way that, it, that we actually make this happen. I read a lot of hundred books a year. And I was actually reading The Financial Curse. And he referenced you quite a bit in the book, which is how I ended up reading Goliath. 
but he talks a lot about the power of big philanthropy. It's like you get the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. It seems like all these billionaires use their nonprofit trust to really gain power. I don't really hear too many people talk about regulating philanthropy. Do you think big philanthropy has also created this monopolistic behavior? Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is the largest single funder of the World Health Organization. So you have one person has quite a bit of influence on a UN organization. So it's a great, great question. I mean, the first major foundation, I believe, was the Rockefeller Foundation, and it was very controversial. The idea that John D. Rockefeller would be able to put a bunch of money into a foundation to accomplish social objectives. He tried to get a state charter and couldn't get one. It was a fight for him to be able to get a charter to do a foundation. Ultimately, he decided to just do medical research because that was sort of the least controversial thing that he could do. Wright-Patman actually investigated foundations in the 1950s, and there are restrictions on foundations. In particular, they have to spend a certain amount of their money every year. They have to do certain reporting to the IRS, and that's because of Patman's investigations. So Congress has fought with foundations before, and there's two elements to it. One of them is that the foundations were very powerful people who were trying to hide their money, or they were trying to get tax-free, or they were trying to exert political influence. But the other pushback against foundations, and so there were other, there were a couple of different investigations, is that some of the foundations were trying to get rid of segregation in the South. A lot of the voting rights stuff that was happening in the 60s, that was being funded by Northern foundations. And so there were Southern representatives that wanted to go after foundations for that purpose, not Patman. Patman was just concerned about Rockefellers and the melons and whatnot. But that was another layer of attack. But the thing about foundations is that they have enormous amounts of political power because the a lot of the intelligentsia is funded by them. They don't want to tell the story of accountability for foundations. When you have someone like Bill Gates who can structure global health choices just because of the amount of resources that he can bring to bear, you have an open question about sovereignty itself right? When like Bill Gates can make decisions about what's going to happen in around COVID or how different African countries are going to do things like he might mean well, or he might not mean well, but why is it his decision? Right? I mean, what's he know about these areas? That's really problematic. And I think we do need to get a hold of these foundations again. I mean, I'm not a Trump fan, but one of the things he did do was, and this is sort of slightly adjacent to the foundations, but he actually for the first time, started taxing Ivy League endowments, which are similar giant pools of money that are ostensibly there for social purposes, but these are also political institutions. And so it was a small tax, but I do think that we have a problem with philanthropy being too influential. But on the other hand, I think it's important to recognize that the consolidation of corporate America used to have seven or 8,000 companies. People are upset with like corporate funding and stuff, but you used to have seven or 8,000 public companies and now you have 3,000. So it's much better if you have companies that are rivals fighting each other, funding different stuff than if you have just like a bunch of monopolies funding it because the monopolies have a much narrower interest. They want to all say the same thing. And we need more government funding. We need more corporations, more firms. We need more nonprofits. We need more foundations. I'm in favor of diversity of funding streams. 
but I do think we have very large, very powerful foundations that exert too much influence on our civil discourse. If you want to know who controls discourse in DC, it's Google, right? I mean, Google funds everyone or JP Morgan. They're the ones, and it's not lobbying. They're giving to think tanks. They're giving to academics. Like the academy, there's corruption in the academy that we need to deal with. We need to figure out how to create more diverse strands of funding so that people are not necessarily as beholden to a small group of funders as they are now. In the book, you write, in the words of William Levitt, no man who owns his own house and law can be a communist. He, much, he has too much to do. You then continue, people with a stake in society, a bit of property, do not rebel. People with no stake have nothing to lose. It seemed clear to many of us during the bailouts that the public would turn vehemently against the political establishment for taking their property, their stake in America, and so it has. And it reminds me of WEF and kind of like Klaus Schwab saying you will own nothing and be happy. Now we see it's like people don't even own their own cars anymore, where people are just taking an Uber and it's not even that you don't own your house anymore. You might not own a car. How do we get back to where people... Or, or you have to pay a subscription for your car. So you, you right. new EVs, right? And like one of the things they're doing is the shift to EVs. You don't need... This doesn't... There's nothing inherent to EV technology that commands this, but it's like, they're like, if you want to go 80 miles an hour, you pay $20 a month. If you want to go 120 miles an hour, you pay $50 a month. It's like, why do we have subscriptions for cars, right? This, to your point, and they don't let you repair it because it's not technically yours or they're redefining property rights. Yeah, they're redefining the nature of property rights. I do think that people feel, most people do own a little bit of property still. But the more you eliminate that, the more you give people a reason to rebel or to not have a, you know, to demand something different. You see this in the medical industry, right? Where it's really hard if you're a doctor. Doctors used to be one of the most conservative status quo oriented professions in America. They're the ones who prevented universal health care in the 50s. In the 60s, they were hugely right wing, very suspicious of government hated unions, that kind of thing. Traditional Republican constituency group for a number of reasons. But one of the things that's happened is that since corporation took over the medical industry, you have these giant companies that are big insurers, but they also own doctor's practices and they own lots of just giant health conglomerates. And you have these giant hospital systems. Like the doctors and nurses are now just employees, right? And you can't, if you're a new doctor, you can't hang a shingle and become like an independent business person. You're an employee and you make less money. You make a good living, but you're not your own boss. And you can't treat your patients necessarily the way you'd want to. And what's happened is a lot of these doctors have become, you know, they're starting to unionize, right? They've gone for universal health care. They've become very left-wing because they don't have a stake their stake in the old system has been taken from them. And I'm not saying that it's good or bad. What I'm saying is the healthcare system was better when it was more decentralized. Today, it's more centralized. And it's not that it's a good thing that these doctors are now left-wing and want to unionize or whatever. No, it was better when you could hang a shingle and you could treat your patient the way that you wanted to treat them. And there were problems with it. But the American healthcare system was a pretty good system. It just didn't cover everyone. Today, that system has collapsed. So it actually covers more people. That's what Obamacare did. There's still some people who are uninsured. But it's a much worse system for everyone who's in it. 
And I think that's what you're seeing is the people who had the stake in that system, when that was taken from them, have started to say, we need a very different arrangement in this system. And doctors are the most orthodox, status quo oriented people, extremely hierarchical profession, right? So that's an example of where taking people's property, taking people's power causes them to radicalize. Do you think AI can make the concentration of power even worse with chat GPT-4? It's giving you a taste of it, but if chat GPT-4 can exponentially improve the next 10 years could be radical change. And I don't think for the better for the average person. Yeah. I mean, the way that we deploy engineering capacity is really dependent on the rules around monopoly at the time. Large language models, machine learning is incredible technology. It could liberate us. It could also control us, right? But you got more tech computing power in your smartphone than they had for the Apollo moon mission. Everyone has an incredible camera that's better than anything we ever used to have like 20 years ago. The phone is an absolutely insanely cool device. And it can be a, a tool of liberty that can let us do all sorts of neat things. Or it can be a digital leash. It's the same engineering that can you can do either. It's just a political question. And I, that's how I think about these machine learning models. It's like you can do incredible things with them. Are we going to make the choice that this engineering and scientific achievement should be used to help us build better societies or are we going to use it to empower elites to have more control over what we can do? And that's our political question. I think we're going to make the right choice, but that is the choice. And I know that you got to get going here pretty quick. So I just want to ask you if you have any final thoughts and also where can people find you? Where can people get your book? I, what I've said, I think like people are too pessimistic. You know, they just don't pay attention to policy. It's a heart of politics. You ask people about what is politics. They don't like it. Like most Americans don't like politics, but that's because what they're told is politics are like annoying, stupid food fights about shit that doesn't matter. But politics should be about how we order our lives, how we come together as a people who disagree with one another and build a society nonetheless. And that is the noble art of politics. And I would just say we should get back to that. Pay attention to how politicians make policy that affects us, not like the dumb food fights. And then you can learn more. I write a newsletter called Big on Substack, which is about the politics of monopoly power and finance. And I also am on Twitter at Matthew, Matthew Stoller. Um, so M-A-T-T-H-E-W-S-T-O-L-L-E-R. And you can follow me there. I'm also the research director of the American Economic Liberties Project. We focus on the problem of private power. So you can go to our website and sign up and get information. Yeah. So there's plenty of there's plenty of ways to learn and get involved. And thanks for having me. So yeah, thank you so much for joining us. That is it for this episode of El Podcast. Special thanks to Matt Stoller. And once again, if you guys aren't subscribed yet, please consider subscribing. And find us on Rumble, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts as well. We thank you all dearly for watching and listening. I will see you on the next episode.